Turn this up in my headphones, Charles. Turning it up. Hello, 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 everybody, one and all. Welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today, as always, is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend Charles. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend as well, Dylan, and not just any fantasy today, because today we are revisiting an author who we are very familiar with. We've read one of their series already. One of the first series we ever read was, you know, Book of the Ancestor mm-hmm. in the early days of Book FDF. Of um, huge fans of Mark Lawrence, and uh, we're happy to say here we're here to talk about his 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 debut novel, Prince of Thorns. Yes, his debut novel, the first novel by Mark Lawrence that you and I ever read as yep. well. Mm-hmm. I believe Charles, geez, this is one that was way back. You read this, it's got to be a decade ago or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, the book came out and in 2011. Then, I'm sure, you know, I was reading it not too far after there, 20 maybe 2014 maybe i don't know but it was a long time ago yeah and i remember you reading it and this was one that you right away were like dylan you gotta get on this you gotta read Mm -hmm. prince of thorns and then it was my entry to mark lawrence's work as well and i've never looked back read book of the ancestor recently read his impossible times trilogy which is amazing high highly recommend that if you're a stranger things fan by the way and yeah and anyway huge fans of mark and his work so we're pumped to revisit something that we read way way before uh when we were just friends talking fantasy and we weren't the friends talking fantasy podcast (laughs) well said we were just a couple of friends that like to talk about fantasy books you know that's the extent of it and this was one of our early ones this is one of the early hits uh, I, I think this book yeah. gets you know recommended a lot. I know I've recommended this book a lot. I made my dad read it a while back. Um, I've like given this book as gifts to people. It's just one of those ones that it just comes highly recommended from a lot of places. You know, you search best fantasy books or something like that. It's always on the list. And you know, we're gonna get into all the reasons why, but it, it truly is its own unique like piece of modern grim dark fantasy. Yeah, for sure. It's way up there in any rankings of Grimdark. It's oftentimes right up there with Joe Abercrombie's work, the first recommendation that people will give for Grimdark. And that's because this book definitely gets into a lot of dark stuff. I think even more than that, it's the nature of the protagonist, Jorg, who is just... I mean, a Machiavellian, <laughs> uh, st- like, oh, pretty horrible person yeah. in what he does. Mm-hmm. And he's willing to do whatever it takes. I think he's, uh, the whole book, I think, is is Jorg, right? Oh, he yeah. carries the whole thing. It's a first-person point of view. And it's just all about him and the choices that he makes. So I think he's he's one of the most interesting protagonists in all of fantasy. And he sticks with me for his ruthlessness, his productivity, his Machiavellianism. I can't agree more. Uh, To me, the reason I recommend this book and love this book so much really boils down to the character of of Jorg Ancraft. Like, this character is incredible, and there's so many reasons why. But, you know, he's a horrible person, obviously. But the way he approaches things and the way he views... Uh, life and the way he kind of strategizes is so unique even in the world of fantasy that i can't help but like have some sort of 
respect for the game. You know, I kind of imagine it where it's like um, in like D&D or another fantasy game where you can give points to different attributes. Like you get skill points and you can spread them out. I was always the guy that tried to spread them out as evenly as possible and get them as full as possible. (laughs) But this is a character you just put like Machiavellian pragmatism all the way at the top and everything else down at the bottom. (laughs) That's who Yorg is. And And like what a character like that when they commit to just whatever it takes to win and you make that in a character personified and you write this book in the first person it 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 takes it to the next level for sure and i'll give the spoiler warning in just a bit but one more Mm. thing before we get more into the deep dive of this on the topic you were just talking about charles i with jorg i always think of him as a great example of something that brandon sanderson talks about where brandon sanderson talks about when you're writing characters that there's these three sliders uh, that you can use, like three Mm -hmm. attribute sliders, almost along the lines of what you're talking about, like Mm -hmm. in a video game. And if you want people to, I guess, root for, or at least grow interested and attached to your characters in some way, you need to think about where they're placed along these lines. And the three attributes that he says, one is likability, Mm-hmm. Um, we'll get to where Jorg falls on that one. Um, uh, well, there's also proactivity and then competence. Those are the three sliders. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jorg, he's such a compelling protagonist, even though he the all that likability is all the way on the bottom in terms of is he someone that you would actually be interested in being friendly with or being friends with or anything like that no not at all Mm -hmm. the guy is a horrible person as we've said but an extremely interesting character because you just max out that proactivity Uh, so you need at least like you need something to make up for that so you max out that proactivity and you put competence pretty high too for sure and it just goes to show that you don't need a likable character as a protagonist to keep I would say most readers interested. There's certainly a lot of readers out there who, if the character is just not likable as their protagonist, they want some hero and then this isn't a good fit for them. But I think most readers, if you pump up those other sliders, you can go as low as you want on likability and still make the character compelling. That makes a lot of sense. That's well said. And it makes me think, it's like you got to respect Mark Lawrence for being able to be like, you know, I'm going to tell... Uh, you know it's a relatively short story especially for fantasy first person one pov and i'm just gonna make him extremely unlikable and that's the your whole story hinges on one character and you make him incredibly unlikable and it just works like none of these characters are are likable at all but jorg is a is a survivor and you get to learn more about him through the that first person narrative and how he kind of reacts to certain news and things like that before we get into spoilers uh but the fact that you were like let's make a whole book centered around a character and let's make him very unlikable is a bold move and to 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 achieve something as successful as prince of thorns from that it is is very impressive totally agreed charles well shall we get into this Let's deeper dive at this let's point. Let's get into oh, yeah. it. I don't know okay. if you need us to say read Prince of Thorns, but definitely check it out and, it. and uh, check out Book of the Ancestor and uh, check out all of his other work as well. You will not be disappointed. Totally agreed. So, all right, if you haven't yet gotten the chance to read Prince of Thorns, and we are from here on out going to go no holds barred on the spoilers for this book. So... Now's a good time to turn this down in your headphones. I will say we won't get into anything from King of Thorns or Emperor of Thorns in this episode, Mm -hmm. so you don't have to worry about either of those. Though those books, by the way, (laughs) are phenomenal, and I would say King of Thorns, Charles and I talk about this all the time. King of Thorns has one of my favorite endings of all time in fantasy it's right up there it might even be number one we bring it so, up all the time we bring it up all the time and the fact that these haven't been made into movies yet is an absolute crime because that's a cinematic moment waiting to happen in 
all yes. of the books, but particularly one scene in uh, King of Thorns. So right. we anxiously wait. But we can't say what that is. Nope. Can't say what it, it is. It's just, just not this episode. You just have to read King read of Thorns it. and find out. But uh, the spoilers. Right. Read and find out. Yeah, read and find out. Raffo, as the kids are saying. Oh, well done, sir. Yeah. So the spoiler ban has been lifted on Prince of Thorns. We can now jump into it. But, I mean, I still have so much to say about uh, Yorg the character because he's, you know, it's a first-person book. It's small. It's, it's all about him. One of the things that kind of fascinates me about him and the ways in which he is, like, air quote, likable is... He has this traumatic moment happen in his life that almost like yeah. Batman kind of right where you you're you watch your family die. His was a bit more way more traumatic than that, um, but yeah. it's something that you can almost kind of get a glimmer of Yorg the kid that was traumatized. Even though you, it never really gives you that. It never really lets up. There's plenty of times where Yorg is struggling with certain moments, acts of violence, like characters um, that he might like. He's like, oh, that's interesting that I might like this person. How odd. And and just like keep moving on. It, it, it's a way to kind of root his character and I guess try and endear us to him. It works, but he's not an endearing character. He's not a likable character, but it, it still works. Yeah, definitely. It's the moment where he's basically stuck in the thorn bush mm-hmm. where he has to just sit there and watch as his uh, mom and his uh, little brother are killed mm-hmm. by an enemy king. I think that's uh is a Raynar is an enemy king. Mm-hmm. Um so he has to just sit there and deal with that. And it teaches Jorg this lesson where he's like, other people are willing to be ruthless. And if I want to survive in a world like this, then I guess I have to be too. And he takes that lesson way further than almost any other, maybe any other character that I can think of, at least in the protagonist role in fantasy. Mm -hmm. But he is... He is someone who does not like to make the same mistake twice. Uh, no. He's out there doing whatever it takes. Exactly. And whatever it takes boils down to even just like being burning down whole villages, killing his own men that start to question him, all of these kinds of things. He does not care. And you get led on to that right away. This story kicks off with like a pretty violent beginning where he's, you know, attacking people and um, there's all kinds of horrible acts that him and his, his brothers uh, commit. And that's just in the first chapter. And it, right. And it's, it's a really intense way to kick this book off. Yeah. It should be noted that, uh, rape takes place in the first chapter of this. I know that's thrown a lot of people off of this book. And I think it's not as intense as some of what I've read in in other fantasy novels that seem to have gotten less flack for sure for it. Like, like Game of Thrones, for example. Relatively, oh yeah. Like, it's relatively off screen, yeah. actually, or off, like more of a reference. But I think it's the fact that it takes place in the first chapter. Mm-hmm where there's just you don't ease into it the way that game of thrones before that any of that seems to happen you're pretty deep into it right and anyway so yeah there's part of the reason why this is way up there on those grim dark rankings is that mark lawrence does not shy away from moments like that and also, probably that it's committed by the protagonist is also probably right. part of the reason why people have trouble dealing. Some people have trouble dealing with it. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, everyone here has probably read the book if they're listening anyway, so they uh, move through it. But it is something when I'm recommending the book, I I think about it like a content warning. Type <laughs> yes, yeah, certainly. It's kind of surprising though. Like when I I remember 
picking this up again. And I haven't read it in years, right, since we were first talked about it a long time ago. And I was like, oh, man, this yeah. I remember the beginning being so intense. And I was like, wow, a lot of this is actually happening, like you said, off screen, like off focus, you know. I didn't yeah. remember it that way. I remembered it being much more yeah. intense. And it was still was intense, but I think it just speaks to, like, how unexpected a lot of these moments hit you in this book in particular right in the first couple pages with your protagonist that you're like oh geez this is pretty hardcore compared to like something like game of thrones or or even first law that goes into way more detail but much later on after you've already kind of like gotten to know these characters like no this is just like no other context needed yorg's a evil guy who does evil things and here's some evil stuff he's doing right now he's you know lighting people on fire it's crazy uh but that's it just makes it that much more impactful even if he doesn't go into like the gritty details of it yeah and i would say too that this is part of what I even think of as the grim dark revolution that took place yes. around uh, like the blade itself came out 2006 and then there's this period of time where I'll, just a lot of these books start moving toward more of this grim dark area and more of morally gray or or in George's case he's not even really gray he's just clearly a bad person but uh, toward these protagonists that are willing to do things like that and maybe moving away from some of those Wheel of Time style protagonists that are always going to do the right thing in the end. So I think it's also jarring in its place in 2011, you said, Charles. And it's, it's almost a little different looking back on it now that Grimdark had such a big presence for a long time. I do think, as we've talked about before, we're almost moving back around and what's going on mm. in fantasy toward like a balance of these dark elements with a uh, with some more, I guess, hope or heroism. You know, we just talked about John Gwynn's work, and that's someone who comes to mind at finding uh, a balance. And I think a lot of Mark Lawrence's later stuff finds a really great balance like book of the ancestor for sure stuff too so yeah this book you can tell right away is very clearly trying to make a statement and like you can be like pragmatic through the roof on the slider and what would that really be like you know there's an appetite for these grim dark characters but what if there was one who just put his pragmatism to work he's like i don't need to fully understand it i don't need to care about it i just need to i don't have to make worry about being deceitful or dishonest or my reputation or the people i care about i don't have to worry about any of that if i was totally removed from any of these restrictions what could i be capable of what could i achieve and it's really fascinating to watch him just plow through people kings armies against crazy odds because of that detachment and that was to me the like the most interesting part of reading these books is how he faces these decisions and what he chooses to do to not only survive but to win and that's like a huge part of this book yeah and it should be noted, we're talking all about Jork. He's going to go get what he wants, and we haven't mentioned a lot about what it is he does want mm-hmm. in this book. Uh, so some of it is what he, he wants revenge, uh, vengeance for his the death of his little brother and for uh, the death of his mom. But also he wants to be king, and even furthermore, he wants to be emperor eventually. And he's 13 years old, which is kind of hard to believe. So in this book yeah and he uh, at one point he says uh, uh he references a set toward the end of the book he says i told bovid tor that by 15 i'd be king said, i told him over his steaming guts <laughs> i'm telling you that by 20 i'll be emperor be thankful it's just being told over this page <laughs> so that's the kind of guy that we're dealing with when it comes to jorg and he wants power really badly because uh, he knows what it's like to be powerless. Absolutely. One of my favorite quotes from this book, there's a couple really popular ones, and this is one of them. But to me, it's just a shining example of that maxed out pragmatism that we're talking about. 
Uh, it's the one that relates to chess. And he's like, you can only win the game when you understand that it is a game. Let a man play chess and tell him that every pawn is his friend. Let him think both bishops holy. Let him remember happy days in the shadows of his castles. Let him love his queens. Watch him lose them all. Which is like, wow. wow what a great way to quickly... And that's kind of early on in the book, too, where he, he says that. And it's like, I I get this character. He's like, I'll... You know, you know, York's the kind of guy who would win a chess match by just clearing the table and shooting the guy with the crossbow okay he doesn't have to actually like <laughs> know how to play chess he's <laughs> just like i'll just kill the guy and then i'll i'll get the trophy you know like that's just kind of how this this guy works but it's this idea of like emotional attachment or or compassion or any of those things is is what's holding you back from achieving and it's like achieve at any cost and revenge at any cost and um, you don't really get too much in this book about how that affects him personally and his relationships. You see some of the cracks come in towards the end where he finds himself liking certain characters and he like starts yeah. breaking down into like laughing fits sometimes or he can't even face his own father without getting nervous. Like the cracks that do come through are pretty understated, uh, but they're super fascinating. And I think now that we've read and discussed a lot of books from like a literary standpoint in the past two years to go back and read this book from that lens and to try and read more into some of those moments was a lot of fun because Lawrence doesn't give it to you that obviously um, he's just because he's so committed to, to your like perspective that only when, the fact that he's in the room with his father and he's feeling intimidated and he's kind of like getting a little flustered. It, the fact that he has that weird connection with his family. It, and then it just goes beyond that to his relationships with women and his relationships with his brothers that he actually does like and why he saves the the Nubin and all that kind of stuff um, are really fascinating choices. Well, yeah, and then eventually he doesn't yeah. <laughs> save the new man. In fact, he kills him. Right? So, but it it's, was uh, kind of different than from when he kills his other um, his other brothers. There's a bit of a mutual understanding there when that scene happened. Yeah. And, um, or at least Jorg. It's all from the horse's mouth with Jorg yeah. here. So, I mean, I don't. He does. I don't think people usually think of Prince of Thorns as being an unreliable narration in the way that they think of it with something like the King Killer Chronicle. Yeah. But I do think it's, it's worth noting that this is all first person point of view coming from Jorg's mouth. Mm -hmm. So when he's giving these moments like, Oh, and then the new bin just gave me a look and I knew he <laughs> understood that I had right. to shoot him with a right. crossbow. But then he goes in and like, fights little Whoa. Reiki too, which he would never would have done if he didn't actually at at some level feel some kind of emotion for the noob and right he he, yeah. he strikes oh he does he picks a fight with little reiki he's like if i was this more practical like i usually am i never would have done that but here we are so um yeah those kind of moments happened but you like like you're saying dylan it's not real moments of compassion or anything like that it's as much as compassion as we're going to get from Jorg is oh he gave me a look before I shot him with a crossbow. It's like, that's as good as you're probably going to get from Jorg here. Right. He has moments too. He kind of has a soft spot for Catherine, who is, um, mm -hmm. uh, Catherine is the sister of his father's new wife. I probably could have aunt is am I, his step is that aunt. the simpler way to say it? Yes, step aunt. I don't know why I went that roundabout route to get there, but yeah, Catherine is his step aunt. Um, it seems like he's you know he's his thirteen year old teenager. He's kind of got a crush on her, yeah. and he does show he's willing to knock her out. Which is it's funny because the Jorg sympathy is, and then after I knocked her out. I didn't kill her because I <laughs> wow like that is I a didn't huge have to, yeah. declaration of love from from York. <laughs> exactly, which is so funny because it does come from this place. When I I remember when I first read it, I was like, oh okay, he's falling for this Catherine woman, and she's gonna warm up his cold dead heart and just <laughs> thaw it out there. And it's like no, 
no. He's just gonna knock her out if it comes to that and kind of think about killing her, but decide, eh, I don't have to. <laughs> and that's, like you said, that is about the best you're gonna get from Jorg when it comes to his sympathy for people. So exactly. That's and what we're dealing with. He did also... You know, another one of my favorite scenes was when he rescued the Nubin in the first place, which you could kind of read as another one of Yorg's moment of of compassion, where he's you know the the Nubin's being tortured, and there's this whole thing of like, he, for some reason, there's something that Yorg is vibing on, and he's talking to him, and he's like, you know, something about needing a hard man or something like that, or like, can you do this and that. And he's like, yes, I can do all that. And then he just unclips his shackles and is like, show me. And the Nubin does not hesitate yeah. and right away kills the captor and helps orchestrate the escape and all of that. And it's like these little moments of with Yorg, you have to call them compassion, even though they're not really like makes this, you know, some of the more entertaining parts of the book. Yeah. I mean, his closest confidant and... I don't really want to say friend. I don't think, I don't know if Jorg's capable of having Everything friends, we're saying here is, is relative to Jorg's yeah. perspective, okay? So when we say friend, we mean guy, you know, that you don't, like, you would maybe give a look at before killing. You know, that's a friend. <laughs> well, that's exactly where I'm going with it because it's Macon, right? Yeah. Like, that's a guy who's been with Jorg and protecting him. He's a knight. He actually has... A little bit of honor considering he's running around with Jorg's band of brothers who are mm -hmm. just hor mostly just horrible people. Um, but there's a moment where Jorg pretty much starts to see Macon as a liability. Mm -hmm. And he's like, all right, I guess I just have to kill him now. And he hesitates for just a second. <laughs> and he's so mad at himself for that moment, too, mm -hmm. where he's like, ah, like, if I was really, like, ruthless to the point I want to be, then I wouldn't have hesitated in that moment. I would have just killed him, and it really cost me. Right. Which is... Because, you know, and that yeah, also speaks to yeah. more of Yorg's character, where he's like, um, the fact that he kills Macon also is like, why does he do that? And he's said before something along the lines of... Well, he doesn't, but he tries he to. He tries to, but he's he goes, um, anything that you can't sacrifice pin okay here it is anything you cannot sacrifice pins you makes you predictable makes you weak so part of of Yorg's desire to kill Megan in that moment was he was mad at himself for feeling something that he then perceives as being yeah. weak so this is a very psychologically damaged human being where it's like oh I might feel compassion for this person I should probably kill them because I need to be I need to be king and I can't have these things around i can't trust them this that and the other you know the things that makes your kind of lose trust sometimes maybe more linked to him starting to feel emotions than maybe that person's actual intent and that was one of those cases yeah and that's a big thing with why he kind of wanted to kill Catherine. like he almost has this voice in his head that's going like she's your weakness you have to kill her and I guess to George's credit, in that moment, he's able to resist it. So, for for what it's worth. Um, for what it's worth. And that's like yeah, the interesting duality that we get from him, even though he's a very, like, on the surface level, one-dimensional, kill everybody, whatever it takes to get to the top. But then there's the reasons why, right? His motivators. Sometimes he's almost acting out in panic because it's like, oh, I'm starting to feel emotion. I got to do something. I got to kill someone, stab something. Right. And then there's other times where he's like, oh, I, I kill you and I can get this thing. Okay, bye. Like that, like there's the two different reasons why he does it and the subtlety in that. It helps to build some character around what you could perceive potentially as one dimensional, but there's actually a lot going on with Jorg underneath the underneath the surface it's just he's so determined in his pov that you don't really get it well said charles and you do get these moments 
that I almost forgot about this side of Jorg until the reread mm-hmm. is he's out there quoting philosophers. Yeah. And I always thought of him as almost, you know, he's smart in a conniving way mm-hmm. where you know he's capable of out strategizing people and all that kind of stuff. But I guess I thought of him as a little less of a thinking man uh, in terms of just from a philosophical perspective like that. Mm -hmm. Like he's quoting Nietzsche and I think Plato gets a shout out at some point. Like it's very interesting. And we'll get into probably a little bit about the, as much as we can in Prince of Thorns about the setting and how, it's a fantasy book where Nietzsche is getting quoted, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, no, it's, that's another really interesting part of this book. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, it's a fascinating perspective, like you said, and I agree completely because Jorg, he's got this thirst for knowledge and he's surprisingly open-minded, which is another thing about Yorick that I can't believe I'm saying when he'll kill anyone and anything, but he is an open-minded guy when it comes to finding a means to his ends, right? He's the one who's reading these books that to a lot of people sound like nonsense, but he's discovering some secret weapon and he has the intelligence to know I don't really need to understand how it works. I know how to use it. And I think that parallels nicely into this conversation that we're having about getting going towards about setting. Because one of the other things that I've always um, just respected about Mark Lawrence as an author beyond his characters, and this is across all of the books of his that I've read is his settings. His settings are incredible. And I think a lot of it comes from his, you know, scientific background. Um, you know, uh, Book of the Ancestor. Former rocket scientist. Yeah. And yeah. PhD Book of the Ancestor has stuff to do like the setting familiar. at the beginning because yeah, no spoilers is, is very, very cold. And it's just a very small sliver where life is habitable yeah. because that's how like, the sun's positioned on the planet. And, and in this book is still largely a mystery. But you're getting these pieces together that we live, they live in a almost post-apocalyptic society where technology used to exist, but it kind of reverted. And there's certain scenes where like, oh, the explosion of a thousand suns. And then that's the old, these are buildings that scraped the skies and all these things. I think Yorg's screaming at a... um, at just a security uh, panel, but it's like say the password. Oh, yeah. it's like my it's password like, is divine right. Password. <laughs> <laughs> Those are really funny moments. It's like and what is like it when a, something meets an immovable too. object? You know, you have two binary creatures going at each other, and it's like what? What kind of conversation right. is this? <laughs> Yeah, I think at one point he's like, ah, he's trying to negotiate or tempt it. He's like, how long have you been stuck in there by yourself, spirit? <laughs> spirit. And it's like, <laughs> like, I have been alone without any visitors for X amount of years. <laughs> and he's like, that must be a long time to be lonely. <laughs> this, is a, this is a computer. Like, this is an AI. It is not feeling loneliness, Jork, but good effort. But did Jork credit, he was able to get inside <laughs> he found a way <laughs> <laughs> he always if there's one thing we know about jorg he he finds a way that's uh that he does i mean he he flew a flag of truce and then just killed the guy uh in a sword fight he just whipped out a crossbow and shot the guy in a duel um yeah. and that kind of stuff just continues so i think eventually he got in he like used his sword or something to pry something open and he electrocuted himself at one point, I think. Uh, but, you know, he's describing it as someone who has no idea what electricity is or any of that. Um, and it's funny because he's like, these are weapons. And Little Reiki's like, where? I don't see any weapons. It's like, no, it's a container full of a very poisonous thing that we can use to kill our enemies. You know, it's, it's kind of where the mentality's at. Yeah, but yeah, super fascinating uh, settings. This like pseudo yeah. futuristic, futuristic post-apocalyptic kind of setting, right? And it kind of slowly unfolds yes. that understanding because you you do figure out pretty quickly. Okay, this has to be Earth. There's legitimate chess. There's mm. the same philosophers. Mm. There's I think the 
the figure that is the main religious figure is now called Jizu. Yeah, something like, like J-E-S-U, no longer Jesus, but named Jizu. But it's very clear that this is some sort of former, like, version of Earth that used to have a lot of the same features as our Earth that we're used to. Right. And this is interesting, yeah, like, like this moment prophecy, where it's a huge... right? Where it's like so many people died at once that they couldn't all like pass on so they got stuck and that's why we have necromancy or it's like that's kind of an intense <laughs> scenario to <Yeah>. postulate <laughs> mark lawrence yeah i mean in the, i don't want to say too much about it because in the later books a lot more stuff gets revealed mm. and some of this ends up making more sense and some of it is you know, Mark taking creative license to tell a great story, sure. which we always appreciate. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a setting unlike any others. And I, I also appreciate that there's not this, um, like, surprise, big reveal moment around it. Right. Like, just kind of bits and the world I've always lived in. That. It's just kind of like this playground of possibilities, right? Where it's like, oh, I'm in a... I'm, they really hated stairs. Like, I'm, cl- I'm going up this sky, this... <laughs> building that at one point scraped the sky i'm talking to a panel i found this weapon from the builders you know it's like oh okay like this kind of like hidden little uh hidden loot around <laughs> like a like a video game right, right. Where it's like you're playing skyrim yeah, like but occasionally it's like you found poisonous gas yeah like borderlands yeah uh, it's kind of borderlands which i yeah. feel has that kind of it's like somewhat futuristic but also somewhat completely backwards (laughs) post-apocalyptic feeling time yeah it's uh, which great game by the way fantastic game for fans of mark (laughs) lawrence's prince of thorns for sure (laughs) for sure yeah so all right well there's a lot of really awesome moments around joe jorg's proactivity that i think are really worth talking about you mentioned a few of them like when he's he's fighting that duel and it's against some legendary seeming fighter and jorg knows he's outmatched he's this 13 year old guy and he basically just (laughs) starts running away right it wasn't it um there was an it was supposed to be making right but i think he basically says to his dad he's like Oh, oh yeah, he steps in. Something where he he, he throws he yeah, he pushes like, the the tree over the jeweled tree to stop yeah, it's it. Yeah, like a glass yeah. tree. Yeah, or something. Yeah. yeah. So then uh, he ends up just running out and he's like pushing people in the crowd away. And these people just got hit by like glass <laughs> shards. And they're the biggest. They're like the biggest noble people of the court, right. and they're just <laughs> all bleeding now because Jorg, who's come back, he's. Uh, you know they still know he's the prince right. but he's been gone for years right. and he's come back and he just smells awful <laughs> like they offer him a shower and he's like nah i'm good <laughs> and he just shows up with all these ruthless looking people and yeah he just uh, he's fighting this really honorable legendary uh knight type guy and it's kind of a moment similar to i don't know if this is kind of spoilery about game of thrones we're talking season one or book one of game of thrones i'm just and it's not a huge moment either but it kind of reminds me of the moment where Braun fights that uh other knight oh, like yeah. really early yeah, on yeah. you remember that yeah braun has got kind like, of those uh, i don't do the honorable thing i do the thing to survive there's some great comments right. on honor in game of thrones i won't get into because they're actual spoilers even if they're early on but um this right. idea that honor will get you killed kind of a thing, which is kind of what Yorg is preaching a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, it was when Braun was fighting that Knight of the Vale, and <laughs> he's just totally does dishonorable stuff to win. And Jorg, in an even more dishonorable move <laughs> than anything Braun did, right. just runs through, pushing people aside until he's able to get a crossbow from the crowd. <laughs> it's like it's like a WWE match where he's like grabbing a sledgehammer <laughs> from right. or like a metal chair. A totally unfair fight. And then he just <laughs> shoots the guy with the crossbow. He's like, I win. Yeah. <laughs> How else is a 13-year-old uh, supposed to win, I suppose? Yeah, he does what he has to do. So that's that one sticks out. There's also the moment that we we've talked about this one a lot 
is the moment where his dad puts him in charge of that. I, I think they're like the forest guard or something right. of that yeah, nature. Small band and, of veteran soldiers. Yeah. Right. He's supposed to take a castle with those troops. Mm-hmm. And when he first steps up to meet the captain, Charles, that's such a <laughs> classic moment. Right? right. Yeah. Because, um, it's just one of it's just one of those classic like villain moments where he just like he just he, anyone could die at any moment. You know, if you say something just not quite right to Yorg, he'll stab you. And he did it a couple times leading up to that. And then he's like, "Who's in charge here?" And then he's asking questions, and he just kills the chief, pushes him off. He's like, "No, you're in charge." <laughs> just be, he points to someone else. You know, it's <laughs> like it's crazy. And he does those things even to his own men constantly. But right. it's just one of those. It's another one of those examples of your kind of, you could say, cheating being unfair, but he he's uh, he doesn't mind taking lives to make a point. You know, it's it's um, it's something that would be horrible to most people, as we've said. But Yorg is a special case. He's definitely a special case, Charles. He is a person who. Like just so single-minded mm-hmm. too when he sets when he sets his mind to something. And I do love in that moment he's like uh, he in that moment with the captain. He talks to him for a while. Yes, like that's part <laughs> of what's really interesting about that scene is he talks to him for long enough where you're kind of getting to know this other character. And in a lot of other books, it's like okay, this character is going to be an involved secondary character in this part of the story, right? And it's just George kind of feeling him out and eventually he just gets sick of him and he realizes the guy might not be willing to just do anything for Jorg and head into a certain death. And he's like, all right, then he's going to get certain death. And he turns to the next guy after he pushes the original captain or he's like, all right, you're in charge now. And he's like, hey, you need to be willing to just charge in something that's certain death that's what i need to know and he's like if not (laughs) like you go the way of the other guy and it's uh it's death anyway so you might as well take the like small chance of survival and yeah he cows that guy into submission and he's able to succeed with that troop and and it was supposed to be almost a I don't know if it was a suicide mission per se that his dad was sending him on, but definitely an unlikely one where his dad who's, setting him up to fail. You can see sure. where, yeah, and we should talk about probably his dad is just as ruthless. That's where George clearly got a lot of his personality. Yeah, traits. it's funny that how they hate each other so much that they have these traits that make them hate each other in common. Right? It's like. It just speaks to how messed up Yorg's brain has been wired that he he can't get along with his dad at all. And they're trying to outdo each other, outmaneuver each other, get each other killed, like, constantly. Always scheming against each other. Yeah, and there's almost this weird... There's hatred, but mm. there's almost this weird respect underlying that. There are these moments yeah, where like, Jorg is like, ah, I should have known <laughs> that my dad would do this because he <laughs> wants to get me killed. And like, that was well that played. Can hate. <laughs> yeah. Game and recognizes game. just stabs him. Yeah, that's... Yeah, game respect game. Eventually, his dad just stabs him. Which is exactly like, what Jorg has done to people right? constantly. It's just oh, like... Yeah. Nothing like a like an un um, what is it called? Where it's like an unwarranted stabbing. You know, it's like that's their trademark move. Yeah, the Ancraft signature move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, York really didn't see it coming. Yeah, I mean, it's funny too because he, in his last moments, he's he. <laughs> First of all, he tries to make a joke about it. I can't remember what the joke that comes to mind for him is, but he's, like, annoyed he can't, like, just get a last joke out. Mm-hmm. And then he's, and he is kind of like, I should have seen that coming. Yeah, and it's fascinating that he didn't, and he kind of learned his lesson at that point. That was kind of the pushing point where it's like, okay, now it's me versus my dad kind of a thing. Um, one of the things I wanted to pick your brain on Dylan since you have some psychology council training and background going on. Uh, 
there's this character <laughs> aspect of Yorg that I find fascinating where when he thinks he's about to die, he just goes into these laughing fits. It happens a few times, I noticed, in the book. Like when he feels like he's kind of been pushed into a corner, he just finds it hysterical. Um, and, you know, if I was Yorg sitting on the therapy couch, you know, on that like Freudian sofa, lying down prone, looking up at the ceiling, being like, yeah, I almost died and I just... I just couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> like, why do you think that is? What is the connection there to him laughing in the face of yeah. certain death? I mean, there's some degree of just hysteria, I think. And I do know of people who, during panic attacks anyway, mm-hmm. I don't know if that I would call what was happening to George panic attacks. But uh, I know folks who, during panic attacks, have broke out into fits of laughing, which is... Uh, you know, within the range of a normal reaction there. And I'll also say the go-to usually when a client, in my experience in the, in the therapist chair, <laughs> uh, the go-to is when a client's laughing, when they're at least talking about really distressful events, uh, we, we don't get into a lot of life or death uh, level events in the, in the therapy room like George is <laughs> right. involved in, but uh, yeah, when they're laughing about really distressing events, it's usually a, even if you ask them, hey, I noticed you were laughing and uh, this sounded really distressing to me, uh, a lot of times folks will pretty quickly say, yeah, I think it's a defense mechanism where I kind of try to lift myself up out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, Jorg is a, Jorg would be a very interesting case study, <laughs> I'll say. I don't know how well we can apply our, uh, <laughs> like the typical, understanding of a psychological profile to Jorg, but there is a, you know, it would be kind of interesting. There's something called the dark triad mm-hmm. of personality traits. Uh, that would be kind of interesting to look into from I've heard of that the test. perspective of Jorg. It's yeah, it's narcissism, narcissism, Machiavellianism and psychopathy. Mm. And there's Jorg is, I don't know how high he is on narcissism per se. Certainly higher than most people. I mean, but not he's willing to admit, like he's willing to admit flaws, and he's open-minded when it comes to figuring stuff out. Like, I'm just trying to understand what happened. He's like, "Oh yeah, I messed up." Actually, I even found the quote of when his dad stabbed him, where he goes, "I should have kept my eyes on him. Should have remembered where I got my mean streak." So he's willing to he's willing mm. to relent a little bit. Yeah, he's a. I don't think he has that much of a, uh, a... I think he has a actually somewhat realistic assessment of his abilities. Yeah. He even goes, and what I made my that, loss so my pain any more important than everyone else's? I mean, the fact that he even thinks that, even though none of his actions lead him to as someone who thinks that. <laughs> but like He's the kind of guy yeah. that will think that and then continue to take lives on a whim, which is kind of fascinating. But... Uh, He's like, yeah. it just is, I guess. I think the other two, Machiavellianism is Off the, the number one thing I talk about when I talk about Jorg. Yeah. It's, and uh, it's uh, Machiavellianism. It's named after uh, Giovanni Machiavelli. Is, I don't know if that's his first name, but it, it's the, the whole, the ends justifies the means mm-hmm. is the famous quote associated with that and it's all about being able to uh, manipulate people and being willing to do that in order to like achieve whatever ends you're trying to get to like it doesn't matter the process what matters is where you get and that's jorg um to a t for sure and then psychopathy that's more about the like callousness the antisociality um being remorseless about all these horrible things that he's (laughs) doing and uh, yeah that's that is way up there as well for jorg so i think he'd be he'd be interesting to look at from that perspective um but yeah he's a he would be a very atypical case uh, jorg Uh, that's what makes him so interesting Mm -hmm. and he definitely he reads as as more believable than you would think based on the actions he takes. Right. And it, it is those glimmers of, uh, I don't even know if it's fair to call them glimmers of humanity. Like you said, it's uh, it's relative to Jorg. <laughs> it's those glimmers of doubt or humanity that show up that 
and of course the fact that he was so deeply traumatized and the fact that like you can tell his dad is probably way up on the dark triad as well mm-hmm. probably not really high narcissism oh, to sure. his dad i feel and like. i also feel like the so, fact that he's 13 is another interesting aspect of it you're not fully um emotionally matured and i, I think you know I see some of that in Yorg where he doesn't quite understand what he's feeling sometimes. I mean, he's so far gone from anything that could be related to being 13. He's so broken. But there is that piece of it where you're kind of reminded sometimes. And even the very beginning of the book, is like, oh, you're only a boy. You're just a boy. Meanwhile, he's like still kind of infatuated with like certain women. And he's... Uh, feeling something and then not understanding it so lashing out in some other way like he's done that several times it's kind of fascinating how you can parallel that to maybe a a teenager going through stuff yeah i mean this is the classic psych or neuro go-to here is like the frontal lobe is not fully developed and it won't be for a long time for jorg like in in men that's typically not until like even the mid twenties, and yeah, he's going to be emperor by twenty, according to so, the end of the book. But <laughs> yes, he'll be emperor well, or according to the end of the book, uh, he intends on being emperor well before that frontal lobe is fully <laughs> developed. So <laughs> great. So and and the frontal lobe is is responsible for some of these more complex processes, and uh, you know the typical teenage. Um, impulsiveness is usually attributed to them not having such a fully developed frontal lobe and jorg is ridiculously impulsive that is you know he he decides in a moment hey i want to kill this you know road brother of mine and he just does it he decides in the moment he wants to push a guy off the cliff he just does it and that impulsiveness is is definitely a characteristic of a teenager Sure. Maybe think through it a little bit more if he were in his 20s, 30s. (laughs) Hard to think of him as a teenager. Sometimes I'm reading and I just picture like a late teens, early 20s figure in my head. And then I'm like, wait, he's 13. Like, that's so young. So young. Still. For that... For that TV show or movie that you were saying it's criminal, we haven't gotten yet, Charles. I do think I would want them to age up. I don't Jordan. know, man. Just because like, to visually, you think if you're so? tr- like the to whole, visually see a thirteen-year-old right? doing that would be Prince of Thorns is nothing if not too... shocking, dude. It's nothing if not provocative, sure. pushing the limits, shocking. Like that's what this whole character be is about. It'd be interesting to hear what Mark thinks about the. About you know who it kind of made me think of because I was TV thinking like gotta cast him right now. Remember, you, you've seen Umbrella Academy, right? So the younger yes. one that time travels. Oh, uh, five? five, yeah, five. Because okay, he's yeah, young looking, but what his actual um, name is. But that's a great. He's young he's looking, actor. but he's so mature in his performance that that would be a, yeah. a, a good. That's like kind of like someone that I picture. He kind of fits the description too. But even that might still be too old. <laughs> he's. Yeah, but that's he mentions fine he's like an early teenager. A in that. Bit. Yeah, yeah, but I don't know, dude. I think there's something. Sh- Aiden Gallagher, okay, is the name of that actor. He's phenomenal in that show. Super talented. I mean, Super talented. How old yeah. is he? If you're on this page, just out of curiosity, like, is he in his uh, teens or is he? Let me... Because he is like played by Aiden Gallagher. The maturity level. Some... How old is? In September, he turns 19. Wow, okay, so... He looks younger. Yeah, they, I'm sure they, they put him in that, like, schoolboy outfit and everything and give him a... Yeah. <laughs> that definitely ages you down. But, yeah, only 18, so uh, still a bit older than your five years. <laughs> okay, he plays five, I guess, in the first season is 13. Oh, and he pulls that yeah, off. Yeah, for when sure, he was in the as, first like, season, that was many years 13. ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that checks out. So I mean, but you know, if right now, if the Prince of Thorns TV show were to launch or movie, he'd probably be a great slightly or movie. I mean, make a great movie. Yeah, it's, I think so. It's very, 
reasonable size for doing mm-hmm. that. It might even be a better fit for a movie than, you know, three trilogy of so. movies, you, one for each yeah, book. I think so. I think you watch yeah. it, it's sh- shocking, <laughs> action scenes happen, and then you move on to the next story, the next part of the saga, you know, you need it to move a little bit faster. But, yeah, I mean, he that's kind of the performance that I was thinking of. It's a shame we can't, instead of Umbrella Academy at the time, five years ago, we were casting Prince of Thorns, he would have been perfect. He still would be good. But uh, I, I feel like the fact that he's 13 is something that I constantly forget but from a visual standpoint would be incredibly shocking and uncomfortable too. Like there's scenes where he's, where he's with, you know, (laughs) he's with certain people and he's, you know, reading books next to naked women and all that stuff. And a 13 year old, he'd be like, yeah, icky. And then he's like infatuated with his step aunt, which would also be kind of weird when you're 13. It's like, this guy's kind of got a few wires crossed, but I don't know. I think it would add to that shock value of the whole thing. It would definitely add to the shock value. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm personally ready for <laughs> the 13 year old visual media. Like, there's just something different in the book. And uh, anyway, yeah, I'd bring him up to 16, 17 if you're asking. Not me. an unreasonable but thing. Charles, to do. you d- will agree to disagree. Yeah, I, yeah. I would. So I would I'd, compromise on that just to get the thing made. But I'd be like. We need to be a little provocative here. This whole book is provocative. It's meant to. I mean, still, if it's a teenager who's like under 18, that is pretty intense. I'm trying to think, too, of like Game of Thrones characters and how old they were supposed to be during. Like in the books, they're way younger. That's another thing stuff. where they aged yeah. up the actors and, and the characters in the right. stories to be older because it's too young. So, like, I wouldn't blame. Arya's like nine. <laughs> when she's doing like some stuff that Maisie Williams was probably like 15 when she was doing yeah it's like, exactly so um Charles I, something that always sticks out to mm-hmm. me is very very Prince of Thorns it feels very Mark Lawrence writing mm-hmm. style as well is the end of this book where I'm thinking of the moment where so there's this mage who has basically been kind of doing some controlling of Jorg and there's nothing using his magic powers. There's nothing Jorg hates more than feeling like he's the pawn instead of the player of the chess game. So then he's really focused on taking out this mage. Corian is the guy's name. Mm -hmm. And there's this fight that they're having and you think maybe Jorg is going to lose. And what ends up happening is Jorg gets kicked by a horse just in the mayhem of this big fought fight and he knocks into Corian and then Jorg is just quicker in reacting yeah, breaks to this whole the concentration of the spell the long enough for him to take a moment yeah. to attack yeah <laughs> right and he stabs a guy and it's like there's a great line too where it's just like it's, it's over Jorg goodbye the mage has placed his knife for the final cut it's just like, you know, new paragraph. You'd think there was never a good time to get kicked by a horse. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's just great writing. He knows how to write those books. Yeah, he does. <laughs> and those first lines, uh, that's always uh, classic Mark Lawrence is those yes. amazing first lines. But anyway, yeah, he's... He gets kicked by a horse, he stabs him, and then he, like, grabs his head, and he's just holding it up, yeah. like, this big victory moment, and because George does not care. Could, were to still get him acting up. like that head could attack them at any moment, they were afraid yeah. to do anything, and, and here's Jorg, <laughs> like, slinging it around, you know, like, yeah, I, would, I did this. <laughs> it's like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, so, I just love that moment, because it is... It's something I I think about all the time. It'd be interesting to talk to someone like Christian Cameron, who has a ridiculously great understanding of... uh, That's Christian Cameron goes by Miles Cameron when he writes fantasy. That's Mm. author of The Red Knight, Artifact Space, all that. Um, And friend of the show. Friend of the show. Wonderful dude. Check out Against All Gods. (laughs) Recently released. For sure. So it'd be interesting talking to him about something like just all the mayhem that probably happens in this, these medieval style fights. It just feels very realistic that that kind of stuff would 
I think again of not to uh, crap on Will of Time, but just the moments always have to be so epic and heroic, and it's like that's not probably how things played out most of the time in these medieval style fights. It's probably more this random chaos of getting kicked by a horse, and somehow it benefits you. Yeah, exactly. And it's also kind of like Jorg, the master of like Machiavellian planning strategy, will go into a skyscraper to get a feat like a crazy weapon to use like and all of that the winning factor was him getting kicked by a horse by chance you know there's something to be said there of like even when he's not planning or doing anything he like he still was able to get his moment and and take advantage of it you know even when it came down to chance yeah for sure I mean, lucky guy. It's uh, yeah, it's the kind of thing that probably would be super common. So respect to, well, you know, minus the the mages, there's probably a little less magic going on. But yeah, but, yeah and God, it's so tempting to want to talk about some of the other uh, really interesting. Oh, don't I know it? Don't later, I know? It. And I know, but, but I mean. We're circling around the hour, yeah, so what do you what do you got? Uh, I mean, I was thinking, you know, we just talked about the end. Unless something really sticks out to you as a must-talk-about point that we haven't gotten across, I think I'm just about I'm uh, right. Tell people to go read King of <laughs> Thorns if they haven't, because well, I cut I'm you like, off when you were like, I'm just I just got to say, yeah. <laughs> and then I oh yeah. I don't know what I was get. I don't know what I had to say. No. Apparently, I did not gotta say it. But oh, yeah. lost the time. King, King of Thorns, so good, so good, people. If you haven't read it yet, you're at the end of this episode. I I can't recommend that one enough because this is one of those series, Charles, and it is, I think, still relatively rare where you can make a case that it, it even gets better. As it goes, I don't know. They're all, for mm. me, kind of around the same mm. level, which even that is very rare, I think, in a series to keep up the same quality. I think a lot of times the first book tends to be the best. Mm-hmm. And then even in great series, it's a little notch below. That I, I say books, like great moments that, permeate throughout the series. And it's a short series, yeah. too, comparatively to other like, you know, all the books are relatively, sh- I say short, but there's, you know. Short for fantasy books, uh, and it reads fast. Um, yeah, they're they're all great books. It's hard to say which one is better than the others. Oh, uh, you know something I wanted to yeah. say? I did a lot of audio this time around. Yeah, and I didn't. Me too. I didn't do that the first time I read it, mm-hmm. and I'll say that the performance was incredible. Very I good. Mean, let me make sure. Let me make yeah, they, sure I get they the capture name of the that to like give proper credit. They capture that almost like the voice act is very calm, but the performance also has this edge to it. It's like I like I don't can't describe it, but it's really well done. Yeah, James Clamp. James, who I'm not familiar. I don't know. Maybe he's done other work in the fantasy genre, but I'm not really familiar with what else he's done. You know, we're so used to, there's a few names uh, that we're super used to seeing all over the place in fantasy. Mm -hmm. Of course, Michael Kramer and Kate Redding, who've done a lot of Sanderson and Robert Jordan work. Um, Stephen Pacey does all that. Stephen Pacey is a a great, um, and then we've had other, other folks that we've seen around. Like there's the, the same guy, Michael Page, yeah. does the Gentleman Bastard sequence as well as doing um, Robert V.S. Reddick's awesome Chaffin Voyage, Voyage yeah. series. So, yeah, you see these kind of names that fl- flow around a lot, and those people are all fantastic. But I was amazed by someone that I just hadn't heard anything by before, how good a job he did. So, if you're looking to reread, which I imagine if you're listening this far you have read the book already if you read the fiscal copy like charles and i did the first time around give that audiobook a try it's Definitely great and it goes audiobook. so it's like what seven fast. hours eight hours like and i think it's nine i was just looking at it yeah, but it's i mean compared to like we've listened to audiobooks of 
Wilf Time getting a lot of shout outs. Uh, 40 today, hours of audio. Yeah. yeah. It's like, <laughs> and that's like the whole, um, you know, Broken Empire trilogy isn't even that long, I don't think. So, yeah, uh, pretty incredible. But, yeah, definitely check it out. Any of Mark Lawrence's work, I would say. Um, oh, Dylan. Holy smokes. What? Tomorrow is the uh, publishing anniversary of Prince of Thorns, August 2nd, 2011. Um, according oh, to Wikipedia. Really? Look at us. <laughs> it's tomorrow. Wow. Yeah. That's just kismet. Yep. kismet drop nice vocab (laughs) word yeah 11 years because i remember last year they did the whole 10 year anniversary thing with the grim oak press edition and all that um of the the book so here we are well we were thinking about before hiatus weren't we thinking about doing this on it was one of the the, like immediate next episodes we were gonna do before we went on hiatus so now it's one of the immediate ones we do when we come back but I'm looking at it right now. Published right. on August 2nd, 2011. So, there you go. I was wow. like, wait, isn't that today? That. Oh, it's tomorrow. almost a bummer we can't... Yeah. <laughs> it's almost a bummer we can drop it on... Well, we can announce tomorrow that I'll we'll release it on I'll tweet something about it yeah, tomorrow. I'll tweet something about it. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, that's a big deal. It almost... Like, we did not plan. I'm only realizing that right now. I'm very serendipitous, but we got close. Um, so... Nice. Serendipitous and Kismet can drop. Yeah, I feel like Kismet is yeah. a is a rarer drop though. It's a deeper That's cut. A deep cut. It's a deeper cut. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> there we go, guys. Prince of Thorns, Mark Lawrence, <laughs> highly recommended. <laughs> I just feel bad for the listeners. <laughs> just talking about how deep a cut. This is, this is the end of the show, people. This is what you know. The real hardcore listeners are waiting for. Is the, are these moments where things start to break down a little bit? You know, we're wrapping it up anyway. They could stop now, and they'd just be missing that sweet, sweet outro music. But uh, all right, well, let's get that sweet, sweet outro music pumping, Charles. Before right. I distract us even more, allow me to play it. Here we go. Thank you all so much for listening to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. If you like what you heard today, let us know over on social media at the FTF Podcast with the number one at the end on Twitter. And then the FTF Podcast, no one at the end, just the FTF Podcast on Instagram. And uh, Dylan, I've heard that like... You can now on Spotify, you know, if you've liked the show and you listen to it and you've engaged on social media, you can go on Spotify and, and, and show some love. You can toss five stars to our podcast on Spotify now. So it's super easy. It's literally, it's just like at the top of the screen when you're on our page. And it helps us so much. Yes. If you do like this show, it's like two clicks away and right in front of you. And I'm pleading with you <laughs> to give us a give, give us a nice rating over there on Spotify. 50 to 60% of you listen on that Platform, right. so, can you believe how much uh, you can help us so captured? much it's over 50 percent of the listeners oh, yeah, now when we amazing. started they were like 30 right but well yeah when we first started apple was like 60 percent, and now they're down to for us like somewhere from like 10 to 20 percent. so crazy you know spotify has eaten apple's lunch so lunch. you're probably listening on on spotify <laughs> so if you can toss five stars that is fantastic but just listening just is more listening, than enough guys. Thank you all so much for making it to the end. We really appreciate you listening. That's all you ever have to do. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, go forth and conquer, friends.